I, we never lived before situation like this. And it's like, you know, my grandmother lived in the war. I don't have the war, fortunately, but for me, this is our war. In many ways, this wartime medicine is not peacetime medicine. Okay, the, the rules have changed. At this moment in time, there are over 1,200,000 coronavirus cases around the world and counting. But this podcast is about going beyond the numbers and the breaking news headlines. It's about telling the human side of the story. I'm Yasmina Hatem. I'm in lockdown in Malaga, Spain, and I'm working on this podcast with my friend and colleague Lisa, who is in London. We actually met in journalism school in New York about 15 years ago, and we both work as independent journalists. I'm Lisa Desai, and before we start, we wanted to tell you a little bit about us and how our own experience fits in the story. We started this podcast because, as journalists, this is not just the obvious story right now. It's really the only story for everyone. And the two of us are living in countries that are not our own, on lockdown, far from our families. So we were quickly able to see how different parts of the world are dealing with this at the same time. My husband is Italian, so the last few weeks have been really difficult for him watching Italy from afar and how his family in Milan are coping. My own family is in Canada, and over there, the numbers have been far less grave and the precautions have been taken well in advance. My husband's family is in the other European epicenter, Madrid, and his father and stepmother both work in hospitals there. My own family is in Lebanon, and that's a whole other ballgame because resources are much more scarce than in Europe and the US, and the economy is in terrible shape. The government actually asked the citizens to donate to help fight the virus. So you can imagine the situation. The point is, even though we are all experiencing coronavirus as a globe, the curve and the spread have been different for each country, and the experience of it, whether health or economic or personal, is incredibly varied for everyone. We've been reaching out to people on different sides of the world, hoping to tell the human side of this story as it continues to spread and change, and as the world adapts to this new normal. One of the most interesting conversations we've had in the last two weeks was with Dr. Kevin Kiff, who is in the United Kingdom. He's a retired consultant of intensive care medicine and anesthesia for the NHS. The NHS, or the National Health Service, for those who don't know, is the public health system in the UK. It was created 72 years ago and promises free medical health care to everyone in the country. But after years of budget cuts, staff shortages and rising demand, the system has been bursting at the seams. And now it's facing the biggest test of its time. Dr. Kiff is based in Essex. It's about 40 miles or a one hour car ride from London. And as you may know, the UK was slow to impose restrictions and lockdowns. It took the government about eight weeks to take action after China first reported that COVID-19 was a lethal illness. Obviously, we couldn't interview Dr. Kiff in person, but we each got on Skype from our respective quarantines and met virtually. Hello. Hi. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Yeah, very well. 
Dr. Kiff came out of retirement a few weeks ago to help train a team of 400 medical volunteers to help fight the outbreak, and we wanted to know what pushed him to go back. As you know, you know, this is happening all around us, and uh, I guess because I retired from the NHS just about a year ago now, it's quite clear um, to all of us, really, that there was something really quite amazing uh, and threatening happening. So rather than be asked, I worked with my private hospital where I work now in retirement to mobilise a team of technicians and nurses and theatre practitioners to essentially offer uh, a volunteer group to the NHS at our local hospital where I used to work. And I'm delighted to say that really all the, the guys that, that came with me did so because they felt it was the right thing to do rather than be asked. Now, the, the funny thing is that I've been back in post for about four days and I got a letter through the door saying, would you consider coming back? So, you know, they have sent letters out, but they were a little bit after the event, certainly in our case. I would have felt really bad if that situation had developed in the UK and I was sitting at home, retired, but feet up, you know, doing nothing. It seemed wrong. There's a humanity that sort of, you know, a, a bond that connects anybody that's in healthcare. I think it's really important to try and maintain that, that sense of purpose. So let me ask you, do our doctors and hospitals, you know, are they prepared for such a pandemic? Was there a protocol that you said, okay, we're going to follow this protocol now? Or have you just been kind of creating one in the last few weeks or even days? In the intensive care unit, it's fairly fundamental to any major incident plan. And every single institution, whether it's um, the ambulance service, the police, the fire service, and obviously hospitals, um, and health authorities will have a major incident plan. A major incident plans are for things like, you know, explosions in a cinema or wide-scale casualties, you know, a bomb in a, a stadium. But they don't really consider the implications of a pandemic. So in answer to your question, um, we're a little bit lucky in the UK in comparison with places like Italy because we are behind Italy in the curve. Consequently, we'd be foolish to not learn the lessons that have already been learned by the guys in Italy. A word of caution there, of course, what happens in Italy is very, very different to what happens in Germany, what happens in Ireland, you know, even in different parts of the UK, practices might be different. So learning and learning organically is a very, very important part of um, preparing for an event like this. So, for example, you know, we've had plans that have been revised several times in one day. And in my hospital, we've moved from a usual um, sort of three critical care unit uh, scenario to being able to ramp up with the proposed um, rate of COVID patient um, arrival to set aside other intensive care units where we would normally not provide intensive care um, in any way, shape or form. And if you consider, you know, that normally in an intensive care unit, there's one nurse to one patient, we're evolving those plans now so that we have one intensive care nurse to seven, even eight patients.
what that means, of course, is that we have ward nurses um, volunteering to come to do the usual bedside duties um, of an intensive care nurse. We're not pretending for one minute that these are intensive care nurses, but there is a chain of command that we're having to develop with every increase in patient numbers to cope with both volume of work and also scarcity of resource. And, you know, that's the, the, the breaking point there, of course, is when resources are overwhelmed, then that's when we see an increase in mortality. This made us think back to World War II, and it's been said over and over that coronavirus is the biggest global threat we've had to face since then. And never in our history have we been so united in the knowledge that our cause is just, for a catastrophe that will cause untold suffering and may set back civilization perhaps for centuries. And in talking about wartime medicine, I was reading about how nurses were being trained during the World War, and I stumbled upon this book called The Army Nurse Corps. This is a quote from that book. Six months after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, there were 12,000 nurses on duty in the Army Nurse Corps. Few of them had previous military experience, and the majority reported for duty ignorant of Army methods and protocol. It goes on to say that they authorized a four-week training program and within a few weeks, they had almost 30,000 nurses who could now help. Obviously, in peacetime medicine, the training is a lot longer and more elaborate. But in wartime, like in coronavirus time, managing resources like people and medical equipment is the utmost priority. And how do you protect yourself and other health workers? I know that here in Spain, a great number of people who have coronavirus are actually health workers. And there is this question of, okay, you're helping everyone, but how do you make sure you stay out there to keep helping? Now, we are taught as doctors and nurses that our priority is the patient. And you know that's often why the, the stress of the job is so high. Um, you know, most of us have suffered sort of stress-related illness or divorce or things like that, you know, during the course of a career because we have maintained that, that ethos throughout our professional lives. However, what I've been stressing to the guys that I've been training this week has been very much that your priority is to yourself because if you remain healthy, then you are protecting me. And if we're not healthy, we can't cope with what's going to happen next. So the PPE, the personal protective equipment stuff, is taken incredibly seriously. And we have masks, we have gowns, we have two sets of gloves, we have hats, we have visors. If the mask doesn't fit um, your face, then you'll be given a, a hood. Um, you know, for any type of um, close quarter care where there are what we call aerosol generating uh, practices. So, for example, if you cough, that's a whole mass of um, viruses spread over a large area. Um, obviously, the basis of social distancing. But when you're providing intimate care, so for example, anaesthetist would be putting a tube into the patient's throat, you can't get much more intimate than that in terms of potential for virus spread. When we're nursing at the bedside, all bodily fluids are double bagged and there are processes for double bagging. They have to be disposed of safely. So when they're taken from the hot zone, 
and they cross a line that has been um, laid down on the floor, literally, um, we're moving from the hot to the cold zone, then that has to be with the protection of the person that's running the fluids out of the area. So that, that whole infection prevention command structure and protocol-driven practice is rigorously enforced. What Dr. Kiff is explaining here, the risk that healthcare workers on the front lines are facing, is an extreme problem. The first doctor in China who raised the alarm bells on COVID back in December and who was ultimately silenced died in February. In Spain, where the resources to protect those on the front lines were very quickly scarce, the numbers of infected medical workers are staggering. A few days ago, the number was 15,000 medical workers infected by COVID. That's about 14% of the confirmed cases in the country. In Italy, the latest numbers show 9% of all those affected are health workers. In the US, the numbers are rapidly increasing every day. We don't want to focus on numbers on this podcast, so I want to share a story that hit a little close to home and that could give a little insight into what those figures actually mean in reality. My husband's cousin and his wife both work in a hospital in Madrid. He's an x-ray technician, she's a nurse. Two weeks ago, they both started feeling symptoms, so they could no longer work or help in the hospital, and they had to quarantine at home. They're both in their early 50s, and the symptoms were severe but manageable. The real worry for them was her father. He was living with them. He was old, frail, already dealing with different diseases. They were terrified to infect him as well, but he had nowhere else to go. They tried for days, each locked in a different room, obsessively cleaning and sanitizing the kitchen and the bathroom. But you have to imagine that they were both feeling very sick and no one was able to take care of the other. And it wasn't long before her father got infected. In a matter of hours, he started showing symptoms and he stopped breathing. The ambulance took 45 minutes to get there. And although they did try to revive him, he died at the hospital without his daughter by his side. And that's just one of hundreds of stories that are very similar. Her father was old and not considered to be someone who could make it, so they wouldn't give up a bed or a ventilator for him. The style of medicine that we're practicing now, in many ways, is wartime medicine, is not peacetime medicine. Okay, the, the rules have changed, and they have changed because of the risk of resource being overwhelmed by presenting patient numbers. You know, the resource is a very important thing to emphasize because we're not even sure that we can adequately supply um, oxygen to patients. You know, where are we gonna store the oxygen for XL? What are they gonna transport that oxygen in? You know, these are logistic questions that the military might be very well placed to answer uh, better than me, but they are a very real concern for a group of patients for whom there is no obvious medical you know magic wand we are not simply waving something and people are getting better this is something that we simply support until the natural history of the virus evolves into them surviving or those patients that cannot survive and are overwhelmed and die so you know the decision making as to who goes where is a really important question 
but resource is an important part of that question. So if we have somebody present to the front door of a hospital, what would typically happen is that their symptoms would be looked at, and if they're considered to be at risk of suffering from uh, COVID, then they would be triaged as to, do you need to come in or do you need to go home? And quite honestly, we're sending patients home as a health service with chest x-rays that would horrify me, you know, during peacetime medicine. The reality is, if they're able to function, if they're able to, relatively speaking, self-care with a plan for representation, if the wheels fall off the trolley, then okay, um, that's the best that we're going to be able to do for those guys. Because we do know that a lot of people do recover from this. So therefore, to prevent being completely overwhelmed, we can only reasonably take in those that cannot self-care, that need a lot more oxygen than, than usual, that in other way, uh, otherwise would be falling over physiologically. Okay. So those patients, once they're admitted to hospital, we have to make some pretty hard choices um, as a health service. If we have clear pointers that putting a patient on a ventilator, for example, is not going to be associated with survival, then from an ethical perspective, putting somebody through a treatment that does not confer benefit for them is a form of torture and is something that we should not be doing. That's a difficult choice to make. These sound like very difficult decisions to make, but, you know, in the I, I presume that in the heat of the moment or, you know, when things are happening, you make them based on data, like you said. But, you know, when you go home at the end of the day, how do you process all of everything that goes on um, after a day like that? I think um, it's quite difficult um, for most people. And this is cumulative stress. You know, to make these decisions on a daily basis in the intensive care unit is bad enough. Um, so I think that the prevalence of stress in the, in the health service at the minute is probably significantly greater. And you, you know, not only are the decisions affecting somebody's anxiety, but in taking a ward nurse from a ward environment to a critical care environment and ask that nurse, can you perform these functions for me with simple commands and, uh, uh, you know, an instruction, but to work so far out of their comfort zone, every single one of them, when I ask the question, right, who's anxious? Every single one of those 400 odd uh, guys that we've trained this week, I said, yeah, me. They've all put their hands up. And actually, I felt anxious on the first day that I went back to work because I didn't know what was going to happen, you know. This is a point that really made us pause because we've been hearing a lot about the health risk all the medical workers are exposed to, but it seems we also need to seriously consider the psychological and emotional toll this pandemic could have on them. In Madrid, nurses are making their own gowns, masks, and coming up with makeshift suits from raincoats and garbage bags and scuba diving gear to protect themselves. And seeing what we could do and working through with my colleagues how we're going to make this work, you know, in a very sort of organic, almost, uh, you know, excuse the pun, but viral fashion, you know, it's it's been really instructive. It's been really stress relieving in that regard. But the various august medical and nursing bodies have been offering um, stress. 
you've probably seen it with your friends as well. If you know, you ask them how much you're drinking at the minute, um, a lot of people were saying a lot more than usual. You know, so avoiding excessive nicotine and drugs and alcohol, you know, in all sectors of society, but having access to some fresh air, maybe, you know, yoga, whatever it is that, that, that de-stresses you, I think is an incredibly important thing at this time because as our medical director uh, said, this is not a battle, it's a campaign. And the difference being that we have to build sustainability into the response if we're going to be successful in maintaining a workforce best place to deal with whatever comes next. In our next episode, we'll be focusing on the psychological impact of this pandemic on the people working on the front lines. We'll be talking to Andrea, a volunteer paramedic in Milan, who shares how emotionally difficult the last few weeks have been for him and his team. I take uh, a mother. The mother was 75 years, and he, she had the symptoms very hard. So when I, I leave the house with the mother, was very difficult because the person say ciao to mother, and he don't know if he will see she again. So that moment... <sighs> we'll also discuss the impact of PTSD with a psychologist. We'll follow up with Dr. Kiff on how his team is coping a week into the high-pressure work. And we'll check on Andrea's team as Italy's curve finally slows down. When you finish the first one, every time you make a debrief, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, you speak about what we do right, what maybe we do some mistake. But after that, we close the door and begin to make fun, change. You have to, to close the old service. You can't finish your shift and you have the problems of the patients that you take it. You, you, you can uh, try to begin to say, oh, how, how he's feel, uh, maybe tomorrow. No, close, you forget it. You need to. To help us tell the human side of the story, subscribe to The Human Experience and tap your screen to rate us and leave a comment so we know how we're doing. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Lisa Desai, and my co-host, Yasmina Hatem. Thanks for listening to The Human Experience, and wherever you are, stay home and stay safe. <laughs>